You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security podcast. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderator today is a national security attorney here moderating as an individual and not on behalf of her agency or firm. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers and lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our national conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law, but will never be boring, unless you're someone who only reads the headlines and never the rest of the article. Or unless you're the kind of person who, you know, has set up her feed on Facebook so you only get certain things and you don't want to be bothered with things that don't depict puppies and videos. If that's the kind of person you are, stop listening right now. Great to have you. Everyone else, hang on. Now, during the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org forward slash NAT security and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topic on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. guys, today we're going to continue our series on private national security law with the journey into what I would call the labyrinthine world of export controls. All right, so to take us through the ins and outs of this national security law, our guest today will be Chris Tamura, who's an attorney with the firm of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Chris, welcome. It's great to have you. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, Chris, I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of background on our guests, and you have an especially interesting background. Um, I understand you're a graduate of Denison University, but you also were a Fulbright Scholar um, and had a Master's of Science in Anthropology and Economic Development, where you matriculated at the University College in London, famous also for having been attended by the Underpants Bomber. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so you got your PhD in cultural anthropology from Michigan, which, you know, just listening to that, it sounds a little frivolous, but it isn't, actually. It gives you incredible common sense and an ability to engage with people. I like to think so. Yeah. So in the 1990s, apparently you were walking alone along a dusty backcountry road in Guatemala, uh, but you did study a language which I cannot even pronounce. Kekchi Maya. Of course, (laughs) I was going to say that. Uh, And then you started thinking that maybe you could do a more interesting dissertation on the knowledge and expertise of peace negotiators, which I also like to call people of tremendous patience. 
Um, then at that time, they were flying in and out of Guatemala to help resolve what was then a decades-long civil war. Uh, then you went back to Ann Arbor in the fall because you like warm weather. Uh, you had seen, I guess at that point, the value of the rule of law and lawyers, and you began taking a course at a law school. That's right. You got your law degree, but being the underachiever that you are, you went on to clerk at the United Nations International Law Commission, and didn't you also get your PhD kind of around the same time? Yeah, I finished them up uh, one year after the other. So I don't know when you sleep, but apparently you do. But, you know, amazingly, you're with a, a very august, uh, very established uh, firm. But you also do pro bono work, which I think is fantastic for a lawyer working in a high-powered law firm like Gibson Dunn. And you're also doing some work with Lawyers Without Borders. So we're going to turn to what is actually a very interesting topic because it, it pertains to laws that I think in the national security context are really not only intended to keep secure the United States, but sort of the globe, everybody on it. Uh, and that is export controls. And we're going to stay on topic. But um, I would like for you to present this entire show, if you would please, in that Mayan language, which I personally <laughs> cannot pronounce. Would you be up for that today? Uh, hey, hey. Okay. <laughs> okay, switching back to English. So export controls, that's kind of a very broad topic. Can you start by explaining what we mean when we talk about export controls? Well, it's, uh, you're right, it's a broad thing. It actually describes a set of laws and regulations that apply to a number of different types of activities. Uh, the provision of services to non-U.S. persons and abroad, uh, the shipment of items out of the United States, the release of technology to non-U.S. persons in the United States, uh, the re-export and transfer of items from one country to another or from one end user to another, they really apply to a broad range of items, really obvious things like attack helicopters and centrifuges, uh, but they also apply to things that you wouldn't normally think of like scuba equipment or wireless routers. Scuba equipment. Yeah, for certain countries. So, uh, you know, under, under, some, under U.S. control, some of these items only require licenses for a small, small set of countries, but other items require authorizations to be sent to any country in the world. All right, well, let's, let's give our listeners, particularly the uninitiated, some of the basic legal and regulatory framework. What statute, what bodies, and, and sort of what laws and regulations uh, govern this, this space of private national security law? Sure. Well, the, the biggest one is uh, there's really three major acts that are involved here. The, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA, uh, the Export Administration Act, uh, the arms, and the Arms Export Control Act. They're the primary ones, but U.S. Uh, export controls also implement uh, dozens of other laws, uh, executive orders, economic sanctions, uh, international treaties like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Biological Weapons Convention, bilateral treaties and agreements, and then multilateral export controls that different groups of countries have agreed to implement, like the Wassenaar Arrangement. Okay, that's a really long word. How about you spell that for our listeners? Wassenaar, <laughs> that sounds vaguely Scandinavian, maybe so Dutch. It's Dutch, yeah, W-A-S-S-E-N-A-A-R, and no matter how long I practice in this area, I always misspell it when I put it into memos and briefs, so. Okay, what else? Well, it, uh, I mean, in addition to these laws, there's a lot of uh, foreign policy objectives that are implemented through export controls. So, uh, you know, national security uh, would lead us to control things like semiconductor manufacturing equipment or technology for the development of the hot section of uh, jet engines. Um, regional stability uh, might lead us to impose controls on 
certain kinds of radar systems or certain types of new technology that would be potentially disruptive to certain countries' neighbors. It might, uh, uh, we also implement human rights related uh, foreign policy concerns. So crowd control and crime control equipment are controlled uh, to, most uh, to many destinations. Right, we probably wouldn't want the uh, water cannons going to some despotic ruler somewhere that every yeah. time there's a citizen uprising protest of a First Amendment nature in this right. country, they'd go down and start mowing people down with that. That's sort of against our general principles. You, yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, and arms control generally, so firearms are controlled, but also things like uh, optical sighting devices, uh, scopes, uh, among others. Right, well, it certainly would uh, make those firearms sometimes more effective at true. doing dastardly things. This is true. Um, so there are a lot of agencies that implement export controls. Uh, the ones that do the, I think, the, have the smallest remit are the U.S. Patent and Trademark, uh, Trademark Office. The biggest office, but the smallest remit. Yeah, right? they have. Uh, <laughs> they they actually impose uh, or license the export of technical information that are used in foreign patent applications. Um, the Department's Energy and Nuclear Regulatory Commission they control exports on nuclear related technology services and equipment, but the two... Can we pause for just sure. a second? I mean, this is probably obvious, but given some confusion previously, uh, let's say late 2006, the Department of Energy really, they, they handle basically what is the, the nuclear arsenal for the entire country, right? And yeah, nuclear yeah. power plants, everything, they regulate all of that. That's true. They do a little bit more than just oil and gas uh, yeah. exports. <laughs> so the two, but the two agencies that have the broadest movements in this space are the Department of State and the Department of Commerce. And the State Department regulates items that are controlled by the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, or the ITAR. And these are typically items and services specifically designed for military applications. And the Commerce Department regulates items that are subject to the Export Administration Regulations, or the EAR. These include some military items, um, some items that have both civil and military applications. These are called dual-use items, and other kinds of items that are regulated because they are in short supply. All right. Well, um, it seems obvious that, you know, if you have something that could be immediately and obviously physically weaponized, that that would probably, uh, that would, to a military level rather, that that would probably be a dual use item. But as we expand uh, in the technological space, as we come across new things, I imagine that what is considered a dual use item is morphing very quickly, highly mutable area, and really, uh, I would say, get probably at the core of where your practice is right now, does it not? Yeah, so um, that's exactly right. So, I mean, one, one good example of that is cyber-related technology. Um, and, and right now, actually, whether it's dual use and whether and how it should be controlled is the subject of an interesting set of discussions that are happening between the United States and other members of the Wassenaar arrangement. A couple of years ago, in relation to the, um, the Arab Spring, uh, the Wassenaar arrangement countries decided, hey, we should begin to think about controlling uh, exports of software and other technologies that allow repressive governments to uh, essentially spy on the activities of dissidents or human rights activists or other people that they want to keep track of. Um, and actually the way that that's done, technologically speaking, is to install certain kinds of software programs onto operating systems, onto computers, onto smartphones, uh, and to do it in ways that aren't detectable. Well, it turns out that actually a lot of a lot of things that we use, uh, things like virus software or vulnerability analysis uh, technology, uh, even things that would reach into your computer and update your apps, uh, those are things that could have fallen into the technology definition 
that, that the Wasson arrangement countries were, were considering implementing. And, and there was a case in the D.C. Circuit where, um, just to sort of give some context to what you're saying, there was an accusation by basically an Ethiopian dissident that uh, the government of Ethiopia had reached basically into his computer through some sort of mechanism, possibly some sort of spear phishing campaign, and done precisely that, deposited something on his computer that allowed them to monitor his communications from afar. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other things that governments are doing is reaching in and getting all the people's social media information. So who do they know? Who are they contacting? They're able to, to really get a tremendous amount of information. As much as you put on your smartphone, they, have, they would be able to get access to it. So even some of these things are going to meet the definition these days of dual use. Yeah, and so and so now there's actually an interesting disagreement on the policy front uh, between what the U.S. government wants to do in this space, uh, in part because so much of the technology in this space actually comes from U.S. companies, and they want to be able to continue to sell their products and do the vulnerability threat assessments, and multinational companies, corporations, and financial institutions have to be able to make sure that people aren't hacking into their networks. And on the other hand, you have other governments, including a lot of stakeholders and, and stakeholders even within the U.S. government who are concerned about the human rights implications of these. So um, the European Union right now is actually looking at regulating this uh, potentially you know, as an end-use issue, uh, in addition to a technology issue, uh, requiring companies that make this type of equipment and technology and software to review who their end-users are and essentially prove that they're not countries that would uh, seek to use it in negative ways. And then just to bring this home, uh, as an attorney functioning in the private practice right now, should the EU take that kind of action, that's going to really inform what you have to tell clients here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're talking today about U.S. export controls, but uh, there are the Washington Arrangement has 41 countries in it. They have all implemented similar controls to our own. Uh, there's lots of other jurisdictions in the world that have export controls, and so uh, we can help them solve the U.S. control problem, but we have to reach out to our, our, our colleagues in other offices around the world to be able to assist and advise on what licensing implications they have. Uh, but but a firm Gibson Dunn size is probably going to have a presence uh, everywhere, yeah. right? Yeah, we have about 1,200 <laughs> lawyers and, and uh, I think 21 offices, so it does help, yeah. So you're trying to keep your clients on the right side of all of these export arrangements because there are penalties to these, but who? what are these penalties? Who would enforce these rules? What agencies would come into play there? Yeah, well, just like the large number of agencies that are involved in the administration of the regulations, there's an alphabet soup of agencies that are involved with enforcing them. So the Defense Department Investigative Services, uh, Department of Commerce's Office of Export Enforcement, uh, OFAC, uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, among others. Um, and when the underlying facts of, of a transaction show that someone was reckless or willfully evading U.S. export controls, the DOJ, U.S. attorneys get involved. Um, but that's really on the government side. Uh, the real onus really is on the private sector and other non-governmental entities. The cost in terms of time, resources, money required to implement these regulations in any given company are huge. Uh, but I'm not sure there's any other way to do it. There are definitely smarter and less smart ways to do it, though. And as part of our work as lawyers in this space, uh, we try to act as interlocutors for our clients with Congress and the executive branch and other stakeholders to help set and manage expectations about what is possible and what would be more effective in this space. So there's definitely high stakes in getting that right. And when you're trying to make those decisions uh, and stay on the right side of, of all of these different organizations, all the agencies, 
how do you know that you're in the clear? How do you know that you're making something that is all good or, or something that might require a license to send out of the country or, or, or to share with non-U.S. personnel employed in your office abroad, contracted out elsewhere? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to know is that the vast majority of items that are exported to the vast majority of countries in the world will not ever require export control authorization. So, but once you know that, you've got to think about um, what Well, not yet, right? I mean, if we get yet. into food supply issues, you it's know, it may be illegal to send apples. So who knows, uh, right? The world's evolving, and there's a lot of issues there. It's true. Um, so, um, but once you know that, you've got to figure out what is the item that you are developing or making or shipping what is it used for? How is it used? What does it fit into? Um, and, and in terms of thinking about that question, what you have to think about is something called export control classifications. Um, under our system in the U.S., the first place you look is the ITAR. Uh, that's the International Traffic and Arms Regulations. If there's any possibility that what you're doing or making has a military, like either an offensive or defensive or an intelligence application, there are 21 possible categories of the ITAR that your item might fall into. Are you sure it's not 19 or 22? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's exactly 21. Um, <laughs> if your item is not controlled by the State Department's ITAR, then you're like, your item is most likely subject to the Commerce Department's Export Administration regulations. And there, there's only 10 possible categories of items that are described or are captured by the classifications on the Commerce All right, let's list. pause. All right, those of you representing startups, um, I don't know what you are. <laughs> if you are tying your shoes or getting a cappuccino, tune in now. <laughs> Well, uh, so in order, uh, category zero items are nuclear materials, facilities and equipment, and oddly enough, miscellaneous items. Category one. Miscellaneous items? Yeah, miscellaneous well, they're... <laughs> Tokens for skee-ball, That perhaps. was pretty much, that really, truly is a grab bag. Actually, when I counsel clients in this space, we, we go through the next nine, and then I say, just in case, let's take a look at category zero and see <laughs> if there's anything described there. Um, the category one are materials, chemicals, microorganisms, and toxins. Two is materials processing. Three is electronics. Four, computers. Five, telecommunications and information security. So these are things that generally have encryption capability. Uh, so you could be a computer in category four, but you have, if you have encryption capabilities, that means you get kicked into category five. Um, certain kinds of sensors and lasers uh, navigation and avionics, uh, marine items, and propulsion systems, space vehicles, and related equipment. It's a lot wow. of things. Yeah. <laughs> so if you are making and shipping something that falls into one of these 10 categories, what next? Uh, great question. So, um, well, depending upon the, uh, the regulation, if you're under the ITAR world, if you're in the, if you're in the ITAR world with the defense article, you essentially require a license to send your product anywhere in the world, any country in the world. If you're in the EAR world, and your item is kind of dual use or one of these other kinds of items that we talked about, um, you may not require a license at all, or you may require a license, and there are things like called license exceptions, which give you authorization to send your item to many, many, many jurisdictions. Is the theory then that a dual use item, once it gets to one country, can easily skip to another one where we don't want it to go? Is that the logic here? You do have to be mindful of what's called transshipment. Right? If somebody procures something in France with the idea of shipping on to Iran... Not that that's ever happened. No, it happened. Yeah, it's just what I read about <laughs> in books. Of the, the, right. Yeah. Um, so that might happen, and you have to be aware of your end use and end users, and you have to do diligence on them. At least that's the expectation of the 
regulations that you know who you're sending it to and how they're going to use it. Yeah, that, but also the defense articles, they're more tightly controlled because they have, they pose more immediate risks, I think. All right, so I think that covers sort of the general, the general categories with respect to the ITAR. Let's talk about the list of prescribed countries sort of generally. There is an actual list. Sure. Is there not? Yeah, no, there, there's an actual long list. In the defense context, uh, in the ITAR world, you have a section of the regulations called 126.1. And under that, you have a whole list of countries, and you know, it includes one that you would expect the U.S. to be concerned about, like uh, Cuba and Iran, but it also includes some non-obvious countries, like uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, it's a long list, and those countries are either designated by the U.S. unilaterally, or they're on there because the U.N. has imposed uh, Security Council sanctions on arms exports or imports to those countries. And so we incorporated that in our law through the through that 126.1 designation. Okay. So if you're uh, if you have a cache of Smith and Wesson firearms, um, you wouldn't probably be allowed to send those to Kim Jong Il, right? I, I think you would want to avoid that. And if I was your counsel, and assuming you're a U.S. person, I would strongly advise you not to try to sell them anything. Well, before we did this broadcast, you and I talked, and we talked a little bit about 3D printers. I think that's just another sort of now well-developed technology that has implications for dual use as well, does it not? Yeah, it does. Actually, there was a real concern a number of years ago because a company in the U.S. actually decided to uh, provide the blueprints on the Internet of a gun, uh, which means that anybody in the world could have downloaded that blueprint and actually printed it on their printer. Uh, and I think it's subject to current litigation right now, actually, whether whether the State Department could do what it did here, but it essentially, it, it, they met with the people who put that blueprint online and said, you know, we think that that's an export actually, and we're gonna regulate that. So we strongly encourage you to take it down. Uh, yeah, 3D printers, it's interesting. I mean, they have, they have a lot of different ramifications. In some ways, we have always, we've always in, um, imposed controls on technology. So if, if you're dealing with an item that's not uh, EAR99, that's classified in one of those categories, you might require a license to send an email that describes how to manufacture something or uh, a PDF or a blueprint the same way that you would if you're, if you're sending it to somebody to produce it in a whole factory. It's controlled the same way you would control it if they were sending it to their 3D printer that they have. And just as a small aside, EAR 99, that refers to items that don't fall into any <coughs> of those uh, prescribed categories from ITAR or EAR before. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I left that out. But EAR99 is really where you want your product to be, if, if at all possible. I mean, it sounds like given the pace of technology, one of the things that is a challenge to the practitioner is not just identifying what thing or service um, the client may be uh, creating that is potentially dual use. Um, but secondarily, these lists seem like they have to change all the time too. Just keeping up with that uh, and mining those things on a regular basis and, and being aware of it and, and maintaining your expertise day to day has got to be one of the bigger challenges, I would think. Yeah, it is. I mean, what's great is like with any bar, you've got a lot of people whose eyes are focused on some of the same sorts of issues. So once you're in it, I think, uh, and you know the other people who practice in this area, you know, we, we share notes with share notes with one another. We show up at conferences together. Often, there's not just one company who's working in the same space, and so so you can get uh, practice pointers or thoughts from other folks. And actually, there's outreach. There's really um, quite a bit of outreach that the agencies do with the exporting public and with companies that are coming up with uh, these sort of vanguard technologies. 
But there are items, and I've had a few over the course of my career so far, where there simply is no, no description of them at this point in U.S. regulations. And that, there you're really in an interesting space because then you think, well, I mean, frankly, on behalf of a client, do you approach the government and tell them that there's something missing? Do you tell them that, uh, do, you know, do you work um, with the government to try to come up with a better way to control it and to uh, inform them about it? But uh, that does happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's more rare. Uh, the classifications are broad, but it does, it does happen. Well, and then I also imagine that uh, there's a risk that at some point something that may potentially have dual use would become regulated later. And then once a company has invested tremendous capital uh, in whatever that is, it's, it's going to be a real challenge for them if suddenly they're in a regulated space that they weren't before. Yeah. No, I mean, in terms of, in terms of a client service that we can provide, we're best brought in early if we can. And, and so with clients that we do a lot of work with and they get more comfortable with the, the advice that we give, they invite us into more of the planning stages or the R&D side of their operations. It's kind of the last thing you want to hear uh, just before you go to put something to market that they really should have thought through whether something was ITAR controlled or EAR controlled and whether they, they're going to have to get a license for every transaction or just some. So uh, yeah, that, it's very helpful when clients bring you in early uh, into the process. Right, but I'd like, to, I'd like to take us back for just a second. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about some of these international agreements because no matter what, they're going to become a sort of part of what you're going to have to talk to the client about, and they are an important feature of the export uh, regulation space, and I imagine they inform your practice probably daily. Can you talk a little bit more about these? Sure. Uh, I mean, there are I mean, the, probably the primary one to think about is the Wassenaar arrangement. There are, uh, four, I think, 41 countries who are members of it today. Uh, it it's, was formed in 1996, uh, and it was actually a successor in some respects, uh, not in all, to uh, a body that existed before the fall of the Soviet Union. So that was called COCOM. Today, Wassenaar includes some countries that were part of the Eastern Bloc. Uh, but essentially, this is an informal arrangement. People meet uh, twice a year to t talk about the things that are being developed out there in the world and whether they should impose controls on them. But there's an expectation among members of the Wassenaar arrangement that you're going to share information about the things that you're licensing and authorizing to be sent around the world, um, that you're going to use the same classification structure and ways of describing things so that there's not disconnect between what's being regulated in one country versus another. Uh, so it's, it's really meant to help level the playing field is probably the wrong place. It's more, it's more of like raising the floor to a certain level that people can all comply with. Let's talk for a minute about where we think this is going right now. Obviously, um, you know, we have a new administration. Congress appears to be taking notice of things like export laws. Where do you see uh, some of this going in the future? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's been an interesting time to be a lawyer in this space because really for the last nine years or so, or eight years or so, there's been a huge burst of energy, actually, and focus on export control. There was the Export uh, Control Reform Initiative that the Obama administration led, and uh, it was, a, a, I think, in many respects, a very successful effort. They spent a long period of time. Uh, the idea behind it was to put higher fences around smaller yards, uh, so basically control <laughs> control those items that really needed to be controlled and to release certain other things from, from, from control. Uh, they did a lot of that. They harmonized definitions that between the different agencies. So uh, when you say export in the EAR context, it means the same thing uh, in the uh, ITAR context. Those kinds of things made it, I think, somewhat easier for people to comply with the regulations in this space. 
the last step though, um, so they got through uh, really kind of two phases. The third phase uh, was to make things a lot easier, I think, for clients like mine. Uh, it was, the idea was to create a single licensing process and a single agency and a single technology platform that the agencies could use to share information about proposed exports. And that was in the works at the end of the Obama administration. And I think the people who are still focused on the, that are still trying to make it work. But uh, with there's not really a lot of direction right now from the current administration on what to do in that space, whether they're going to try to continue something that Obama started, whether they want to go back to the drawing board. And unfortunately, Congress has been kind of preoccupied with uh, other things as of late. So there's not a lot of uh, emphasis right now on this. And actually, that is those last steps, the kind of creating a single agency or creating a single control list, those are things that are going to require uh, legislative acts. Congress does have to get together and actually think, oh, this would be a good time to reform the export control system, which I think is probably about 19 or 20 on the list of priorities right now. Good Lord. All right. Well, I mean, it sounds more efficient. It sounds like it would be a lot easier for people to put, uh, especially if it was the same information, into one place where it could be accessed by all the relevant agencies and evaluated for their equities. All right. Let's talk about another thing. I mean, when you're in this, when you're practicing in this space and you're a private practitioner, what are the biggest challenges? That's a good question. I mean, I think I think in this space, one of the biggest challenges we have as lawyers is getting out of our comfort zones. I mean, as lawyers, we're probably most familiar and comfortable with words and memos and briefs and case laws and sometimes standing up and delivering a presentation or being in the courtroom uh, to deliver an argument. But to do export controls well, you have to be willing to do field work with your clients and to get your hands dirty in the world of science and engineering and international business negotiations. When you start working with a new client, you really, in my experience, should get on site as soon as possible. Um, you should go to Amazon or the bookstore, if they still exist in your area, and buy the Semiconductors for Dummies book uh, and spend time on Wikipedia and YouTube uh, to learn how it is they make the things that they make and what it is that they're researching and why that's so important. But that, I mean, that sounds great. You get to inhabit other lives, other disciplines yeah, through your practice. Is, that's that's fantastic. Of, yeah, it's one of the fun, very fun parts of my work. And, you know, if you're working with the right clients in the right spaces at the right time, you actually get little small glimpses of the future, too, which is pretty interesting. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and invigorating. It's a, it's a terrific thing. I don't want our listeners to think that we're skipping over economic sanctions, which are an important part of the export control sort of discipline, sub-discipline in the law. We have done a prior podcast on that. We've had um, two guests who have discussed that, both Adam Smith uh, as well as Brian Egan, um, Adam from Gibson Dunn as well, and Brian from Steptoe. Um, so our listeners can hear uh, a more fulsome dialogue about that. I'd like to ask you, and, and what I like to pose, the question I like to pose to lawyers in the private space is, if I'm a young lawyer, and let's say I am advising, I'm living in Mission in San Francisco, I'm living the dream, and I'm trying to establish a private national security law practice where I am advising startups, guys I went to college with maybe, you know, women who may have the, the next big idea. Uh, some of my clients run companies that, let's say, they're, they can be used to hack and disable multiple SCADA systems. Uh, let's say, in a very cold country in the middle of winter, potentially resulting in mass casualties from freezing. Uh, but that same technology can be used to activate a disabled or compromised SCADA system to bring electricity to a population and ensure its survival in some sort of climatic extreme. 
what should I be thinking about? What should I be worried about? What should I be considering? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question and actually um, kind of ripped from the headlines if, if you're reading the right sources. But um, it's not implausible. This is the sort of thing that people do think about in our, in our space. I mean, I think the biggest thing, it actually sounds pretty elementary, but you've got to understand what it is that you're dealing with. You've got to go to spend some time to figure out how the program works, um, how it's used. Uh, here are some good examples in your, in your hypothetical. But after you've done that, you really have to look at the classification. You've got to figure out um, whether you're dealing with something that's dual use, which it sounds like this item potentially could be. Uh, but even some dual use items are controlled as if they're defense articles because they are so potentially harmful to national security. So, you know, encryption controls for many years uh, were the domain of the ITAR, and it was only in the mid-90s or so that they became subject to the EAR and subject to less stringent licensing requirements. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the catch-alls within the ITAR are things that have significant intelligence capabilities or, or impacts. And so um, this could be something that you might want to look at and see whether it's caught captured by the, the definition of a defense article or captured in the, in the miscellaneous category of things not yet defined. So that's something you'd want to look at. Um, but, you know, you're looking at it. So this is, a, a, as you said, it's a startup. You're in San Francisco. You're super, probably super excited. You probably want to someday be acquired by somebody else. Maybe you're really in for the log on. Maybe you really believe in the product you've developed and you want to use it to make the world a better place in some way or to get very, very wealthy. So either way, you really should be thinking about these regulations because um, if you want to continue to build a, your supply chain or your customer base, you can really get a leg up on your competition and qualify for work with bigger and more sophisticated companies if you can show that you've got your trade compliance ducks in a row. Also, uh, on just you know on the other hand, if you're looking to be purchased, anybody who is large enough to acquire that a company like that is probably going to want to come and kick the tires a little bit to try to figure out what exactly is it they're buying, uh, whether they're going to be able to lawfully sell the products that they're coming up with internationally, uh, and whether buyers and investors might walk away because the company poses too much legal or in, in the case of things like cyber intrusion, surveillance, uh, political risk, right? Are you making something that is so sensitive that you're going to have a hard time marketing it to the rest of the world? And what advice would you offer the young lawyers at the ABA Young Lawyers Division, say, if they were interested in private national security law? Yeah, well, this is a complex area of law, but it's not so much more complex than any other. So, I mean, you obviously have to put your time in trying to understand how the regulations work. Uh, you know, go to the treatises, go to the, the basic summaries that are out there, read lots of client alerts to do that. It's not completely inaccessible, although I maybe fear that I've made it sound that way today. But um, if you're interested in this space and you really want to make a name for yourself, you know, try to actually go out to the world and find, you know, read Wired magazines, read other kind of magazines that are telling you about the Vanguard technologies. Fast Company. Fast Company, yeah. That, uh, you know, get, uh, watch your Facebook feed for <laughs> interesting new product offerings that are out there and, and wonder, hey, I wonder if that's going to be controlled or how would you control that or does it have functionality that would be of interest to governments to try to control. So try to figure out what's out there uh, because that's an opportunity for you uh, to be creative with your lawyering, a way to kind of mark yourself out from other people who are already operating in this space, uh, an opportunity for you to be a thought leader in, in this community. Outstanding. All right. Well, this has been a pleasure, I have to say. We really appreciate it. 
Tell us what we can expect from you in the future, Chris. Uh, writings, books. Does Gibson Dun & Crutcher post on this or other national security issues? Short answer, yeah. We have, we have actually great client alerts uh, that if you want to become a part of our client alert distribution list, uh, you're welcome to contact me uh, by email at, or www.gibsondun.com. You can uh, find out about our latest kind of writings in this space. But with me personally, I'm, I'm kind of interested now and I'm working, doing a lot of thought actually on how to integrate international trade controls with areas like corporate, uh, corporate social responsibility, law and policy. You know, people comply with export controls because it's a law. Uh, but interestingly and rapidly, there are a lot of areas now in corporate social responsibility that are before they were just policy only or nice to haves that are now becoming law in a lot of jurisdictions. Uh, and especially from an investor or a customer perspective, if a company tells you it's going to make its items sustainably or in a way that safeguards human rights, um, they should be implementing these commitments in the same way they would do any trade regulation. Um, it's been so great to have you here today, and I hope that you're going to come back to us in the future and do another episode. I'd love to. Uh, I think Gibson Dunn is lucky to have you, and I'd like for the very last moment here today to ask you something uh, that I think is an important and pressing question that will call upon your PhD in cultural anthropology. <laughs> I want to, uh, what cultural significance do you ascribe to the fact that Vladimir Putin resembles Boss Baby? Uh, thoughts? <laughs> the one that I've actually come up with uh, are, are slee stacks, if you remember Land of the Lost. He kind of looks like a slee stack to me, but uh, Boss Baby, yeah, well, there's been. <laughs> All right. Well, we like to be serious. Look, this is the ABA. We're serious. All right. Well, it's been great to have you. Come back and see us again. <laughs> thank you again, Chris. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. So right now, if you're sitting out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff where you have no access to the device you're using to listen to us right now, and you're trying to figure out if any of your apps could be weaponized. And you don't mind having no access to those apps for hours at a time. But you still want to practice the kind of law that gives you a courtside seat to history and apparently the future. A courtside seat to watch a game you can't talk about with your in-laws. <laughs> then join us next time for the National Security Law Today podcast. Brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember something else. Listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available to, for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.